as Christians, we gladly believe in the power of God to redeem sinners. And not just in the by and by, like someday in eternity everything will be right, but also in the here and now. Right? Some of the evidences for the truth of the gospel are the transformed lives of those who believe it. The beauty of Christ's work of redemption is that it truly changes people. Despite the common idea in our, prevalent in our culture that you can't change, people don't change, it's even in our Disney songs, God really changes people by the power of the Spirit through the gospel. There was a woman in my uh, Houston church years ago whose adult son was far from the Lord, and she earnestly prayed and desired his salvation. And if you asked her how her son was doing, she would say, well, he's still working on his testimony. Meaning, of course, that he's still in the darkness of sin, awaiting the Lord's transforming grace to take hold. I always appreciated that way of thinking about it. It holds out the hope that God will get a hold of him and will transform him by the gospel. Well, in the passage in Genesis that we consider today, we get to spend some time with one of Joseph's older brothers, Judah. And you might say at this point in the story that Judah is still working on his testimony. The Judah we see in Genesis 38 is selfish, rebellious, cruel, hypocritical, driven by fleshly lusts. Far from a picture of the great commandment, love God and love people, right? A couple other disclaimers to make about this passage before we jump into it. First, it's one of those kind of PG-13 rated passages of scripture. Uh, The Bible sometimes gives us stories like this that depict some very unseemly behavior on the part of its main characters. So I'll handle these details as delicately as I can. Uh, But consider yourself warned, this ain't pretty. What we see in this chapter is uh, is far from godly. Second, it has, on the surface at least, nothing to do with Joseph. In this series of messages, we're telling Joseph's story, of course. So it may seem a bit surprising that the narrator of this story takes such a stark detour here. But two things I'll say in his defense. First, in the immediate context of Genesis, Judah's behavior in chapter 38 provides an obvious contrast with Joseph's handling of sexual temptation in chapter 39, the very next chapter, what we'll look at next week. And so there is an intentional contrast here between the character of Judah and the character of Joseph that that Moses intends for us to see. Secondly, Recall that this last section of Genesis, chapters 37 all the way through 50, covers the generations of Jacob. So it's not just the story of Joseph. Uh, The actions and experiences of Jacob's other sons also bear relevance and importance in God's unfolding plan to redeem a people for himself and bless the nations of the earth. Though, admittedly, all that redemption and blessing feel pretty distant in this bizarre chapter. So the story so far, in a nutshell, we've met 17-year-old Joseph, the second youngest of the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name has been changed to Israel, and we know that the 12 sons of Israel will become the, the nation of Israel, that they're the progenitors of the nation. 
And Joseph is the second youngest and clearly his father's favorite. And his father gives him a special robe to denote his status in the family. His father bestows on him some special kind of managerial work to oversee the work of his brothers and to report back to him on what they're up to and those sorts of things. And so clearly, the next fact that's relevant to the story, his brothers hate him. We're told that three times in chapter 37. They hate him. They cannot even say shalom to him. We were told in the middle of that chapter. And so one day while the brothers are out in the field shepherding the flocks, Joseph comes to them on this mission from his dad, go and see what they're up to and then report back. And they plot against him to kill him. And we saw last week how that plot downgrades a little bit. They don't kill him outright. They decide, let's just throw him in a pit and we'll leave him there. And then they decide, well, let's not leave him in a pit. Let's sell him because they saw some Ishmaelite traders coming by. So let's actually make some money and we'll sell him as a slave and they'll take him down to Egypt and we'll be done with him. And we'll get a little bit of cash on the side in the process. And so chapter 37 ended with Joseph having been sold as a slave and taken down to Egypt where he was purchased by Potiphar an official in Pharaoh's court. And that's the last word we have on Joseph until the beginning of Genesis chapter 39. So the scene cuts back to the land of Canaan where Jacob is living with his wives and sons and all of their company and all of their flock. And it zeroes in specifically on Judah, the fourth of Jacob's 12 sons. Let's start to look at this story. I'm going to read for you the first six verses of Genesis chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. We're going to pause there. Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside. And you can tell right off the bat, this is no good. Judah has left the family. There's no explanation really given here. He's left the family. He's distanced himself from the covenant community. He's isolated himself from God's people. When the Bible says that someone turned aside, it usually means more than just geographically. It means spiritually and morally. He turned aside to follow another way. And so Judah here has turned in his heart away from the covenant people of Yahweh and toward a pagan, idol-worshiping community. The only name that we're given that, of the people that he specifically uh, aligns himself with is Hira the Adulamite. We don't even know the name of his wife. We're told that the wife's father is named Shua. But we don't know the name of his wife. And as if to demonstrate just how much distance he's placing between himself and Jacob's family, he takes for himself a wife from among the Canaanites. And he has three sons with this Canaanite wife. And he finds a Canaanite wife for his oldest son, Ur. And we are given the name of his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And she will prove to be a memorable character indeed. 
So let's make a note here about intermarriage. So intermarriage with the Canaanites was already out of step with the practice of his ancestors. So in Genesis chapter 24, Abraham made his servant solemnly swear that he would find a wife for his son Isaac among their own people. In Genesis 26, Isaac's son Esau actually marries two Canaanite women, Hittite women, and it says that they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And then in, in Genesis 28, Isaac sends Jacob to his uncle Laban's place to find a wife among his own people. And he urged him solemnly, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. So it's already the practice of the family of Abraham to try to stay within the boundaries of their family lines for, uh, for marriage and not to intermarry with, with the peoples of the land of Canaan. And eventually, it would be explicitly prohibited in Yahweh's law for the nation of Israel, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Not because of any uh, racial or ethnic issue with intermarriage. It's not as though God hated these peoples, and so he was trying to keep them apart. The problem was a religious problem. God is trying to guard the integrity and the purity of his people in their worship of him, their covenant with him. And so he knows that if they begin to intermarry with these pagan idol-worshiping peoples, they're going themselves to end up being corrupted and led away from God. And so, in other words, the people of God are not to be unequally yoked, to use a New Testament phrase, with those who do not share a covenant commitment to him. And so in these opening verses of Genesis 38, then we have a cautionary tale that is instructive for Christians today. Don't turn aside from the people of God. Don't distance yourself from the covenant community. If you isolate yourself from the church, you make yourself vulnerable to the siren song of the world, and you'll likely soon find your heart drawn to relationships and allegiances that do not comport with the call of discipleship to Jesus Christ. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, says Paul in Galatians 5.9. So we see Judah ignoring such wisdom and aligning himself with these idol-worshiping Canaanites. So Judah has alienated himself from Yahweh's people and settled into family life with these Canaanites, and then things start to get interesting. Look at verse 7. Ur, remember this is Judah's firstborn son, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh put him to death. Whoa. That'll get your attention right there. This is all we know of Ur. We're not told what he did, that Yahweh regarded as deserving of the death penalty, but suffice it to say, the Lord alone is the giver of life, and thus he is altogether righteous in the taking of life as well. You know, we've seen that Judah has distanced himself from Yahweh's covenant people, so it's not a stretch to assume that he has not raised his sons in the fear and admonition of the Lord either. So perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised that Judah's firstborn son is not a righteous man, and thus the just judgment of God befell him. 
And as we're about to see, Ur's younger brother Onan is not really any better. But before we get to his part of the story, we need to set up a little bit of background context. So Ur's Canaanite wife, Tamar, had borne him no children. God strikes him dead before they have any kids. And so not only is she left in the socially vulnerable position of a widow, Judah's son Ur is left without a descendant to carry on his name and thus his portion of the family inheritance. God's concern for the vulnerable widow as well as his provision for the family line of a deceased husband are demonstrated by some provisions that he will eventually include in the Mosaic law. Now, that law, of course, won't be given until the nation of Israel reaches the foot of Mount Sinai after their exodus from Egypt a few hundred years later. But there's a law there known as leveret marriage that is obviously already observed here, at least as a standard practice, if not a divine mandate. Leveret marriage literally means marriage with a brother-in-law. So the practice goes like this. When a man dies, before he and his wife bear any sons, his brother, the wife's brother-in-law, takes the widow as his own wife, and the first son born to them would be considered the legal descendant of the deceased husband, so that his name could continue, and so that the family inheritance that he would share, his line would share in the family inheritance. Now, the best-known example in the Bible of leveret marriage is the marriage of Boaz to Ruth, as Boaz is a near relative of Ruth's late husband. So Boaz performs the duty of a brother-in-law by taking Ruth as his wife after her husband, his relative, has passed away. Now, that all feels very distant culturally because that's not anything like what we, what we do. And God doesn't specifically commend that practice to the church today. But that is the, something that God used for the nation of Israel to protect them and to carry on that, that royal line. So, with that in mind, let's go back to Onan, the second son of Judah. Look at verse 8. So, after Ur has been struck dead... Verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So Onan has his marching orders. His brother Ur has passed away without any descendants. Go now, take his widow Tamar as your wife and bear a son with her who will be Ur's legal descendant. Okay, remember how I said that Onan is apparently no more righteous than his older brother had been. Here's why I say that. Onan is quite happy, it seems, to enjoy physical intimacy with his new wife, Tamar, but he has no interest at all in providing an heir for his brother, knowing that the child will not be regarded as his own. So his strategy, which he apparently employs routinely based on the verb tenses in verse 9, is to engage in physical intimacy with Tamar in such a way that he could intentionally avoid getting her pregnant. This strategy on Onan's part, clever though it may be, is detestable in the sight of Yahweh, and so he suffers the same fate as his older brother. Look at verse 10. And what he did was wicked in the sight of Yahweh, and he put him to death also. Two out of three. Judah's sons aren't doing too well. 
Why is this act on Onan's part so wicked in God's sight? You might scratch your head and wonder what the big deal is. I can think of two reasons. Number one, he treats his family with disdain. And by the way, his family is the family of Abraham, God's people. He treats his family with disdain by intentionally avoiding producing a descendant for his brother, probably out of a selfish concern that his own inheritance might be affected by the addition of a child that would not legally be his. We actually see a similar motivation in the book of Ruth on the part of that other relative when Boaz said, there is a relative closer than I, and I need to offer the opportunity to him. And he declined it because he said, because he was concerned that his inheritance would be spread too thin. And so probably Onan is thinking the same thing. And he treats his family thus with disdain. And secondly, he abuses his wife Tamar. He objectifies her, using her body as an object for his own selfish gratification. It is repeated sexual violence against Tamar. It's despicable. So Onan follows in the wicked footsteps of his big brother Ur, and he incurs the same divine wrath, being put to death by Yahweh, just like his brother. This is the kind of family tradition you don't want to carry on. Before we move on with the story, and there's more steps in this, it gets weirder and weirder as we go. Before we move on, allow me to make a cultural observation and then offer an exhortation. Here's the observation. While it would ultimately end very badly for him, Onan probably thought he had concocted the perfect arrangement here, where he could enjoy the physical pleasure of marital intimacy without incurring any of the responsibility of raising children. And if that doesn't sound like the culture we live in today, I don't know what does. The freedom of promiscuity without the burden of responsibility. The severing of sexual intimacy from the bearing of children has been the central innovation of the so-called sexual revolution, and it has left unspeakable wreckage in its path. Adultery, no-fault divorce, fatherlessness, abortion, and on and on it goes. This is where it all starts. This is the world we live in. Sinners are the same in every age. Here's the exhortation. If we believe for a moment that we're going to get away with it, we're just as foolish as Onan was. Sexual immorality is not just a problem out there in the world. It's a constant temptation to men and women within the family of God, and it is deadly. Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is no small matter, and it is probably the defining sin or area of sin of our culture, and the church is not immune. So we need to take heed of the warning we have in the life of Onan, whom God strikes down for this sin. God is righteous in the giving and taking of life. 
Well, Judah is down two of his three sons. Given that track record, it's not looking so good for the next brother in line, his youngest son, Shelah. So what does he do? Look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. And then we have this commentary from Moses. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now let me state the obvious. Judah clearly has no intention of ever making good on this promise. Perhaps he assumes that somehow Tamar is to blame for the deaths of his first two boys. Whatever the case, he wants to keep a closer eye on Shelah, and he knowingly deceives her. Just wait until Shelah is old enough, and then I'll give him to you in marriage. And Tamar returns as a widow to her father's house. In the next few verses, we find out about the third death in this chapter, and yet another deceit, although this one employs a bit of poetic justice. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. There's the, the faithful companion, Hira the Adulamite. I'm not sure he's doing any favors, Judah. Verse 13, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. We don't know exactly how much time has passed, but it's enough that Tamar has observed Shelah has grown up, and yet Judah has not given him in marriage. So Judah's nameless Canaanite wife dies, and he mourns for a while, apparently. And then after he's comforted, I guess he's done grieving, he goes on a shepherding errand to Timnah, a nearby town, with his buddy Hira. And when Tamar finds out that Judah's going into town, she decides to pull a little con of her own. And the nature of this con, essentially posing as a harlot on the roadside where she knows Judah will pass, indicates what kind of a man Tamar knows Judah to be. She's confident that just being there on the side of the road, dressed as a harlot, will be enough to entrap him. He won't be able to help himself. Remember, he's still working on his testimony. Let's look at what happens. Look at verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was in his daughter, that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her. And went into her, and she conceived by him. Oh, Judah, Judah, Judah. Apparently, he was precisely as predictable as his daughter-in-law knew him to be, and he falls right into her trap. When she says, what will you give me? 
She's thinking, since clearly you're not going to give me your son like you promised. He tells her he'll send her a goat. I'll send a goat to you later. Deferred payment, right? Put it on credits. Okay, but Tamar knows better than to trust Judah to keep his word, so she asks for a pledge. Right? Make a deposit. Leave something here that you won't get back until you send what you promised to send. Now, the signet, cord, and staff that Tamar asks for are personally identifying objects. Sort of like a driver's license or a debit card would be for us. A look at these items would quickly identify Judah as their owner. They're unique to him. So Tamar is clearly no dummy. But lucky for her, Judah definitely is. So he leaves them with her. I'm reminded of Esau willing to sell his birthright for a bowl of stew. He leaves them with her so that she'll let him have his way. And he engages in illicit sexual intimacy with her, his daughter-in-law, remember? And plot twist, verse 18, she conceives by him. Now, as we observed earlier, the Lord is the giver of life. And as we've seen throughout the story of this family in Genesis, it is the Lord who opens the womb. So don't mistake Tamar's conception by Judah as an incidental detail or just an odd bit of serendipity. This is the meticulous providence of God on display yet again. It is the Lord who has provided the fruit of the womb to this abused, neglected, vulnerable widow. Deuteronomy 10, 18, we're told that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And here we see God taking up the cause of the vulnerable by providing Tamar these, uh, these children. So a quick update, the story goes on. Judah, to his credit maybe, if any credit can be given to him, actually tries to send the promised goat uh, to the unknown harlot at Anaim by his friend Hira the Adolamite. But lo and behold, there is no prostitute there. And so he asks some guys who are hanging around where he might find the prostitute who works there, and they all look at him like he's lost his marbles. There's no prostitute that works here. What are you talking about? And so he returns with the goat, I suppose, and reports this to Judah. And Judah decides in verse 23, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. True. At least laughed at. And so his best option, it seems, is to sit tight and hope that this episode won't come back to bite him later. The narrator says it would come back to bite him later. Let's read verses 24 through 26. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out. And let her be burned. Now, a quick note there about the word being immoral. The Hebrew actually could be translated practicing prostitution. So she is pregnant by practicing prostitution. And Judah says, bring her out and let her be burned. Oh, righteous Judah, we must uphold the law. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong... I am pregnant. 
And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. To know her means to lie with her. This is the gotcha moment that we've all been waiting for, of course. Judah's hypocrisy is on full display, ordering the burning of Tamar and her baby, remember, for practicing harlotry, knowing full well that he himself patronized the harlot about mm, three months ago. And then Tamar brings out the signet cord and staff, and don't miss this irony, she says, please identify whose these are. Several years ago, Judah had been with his 10 co-conspirator brothers when they brought Joseph's bloodied robe to their father and said, please identify whether this robe is your son's or not. And Tamar uses the exact same language. Please identify whose these are. And maybe it was that reminder after these years of his treachery against Joseph and his deceit toward his father. Or maybe it was simply coming face to face in such an exposed way with his own sinful mistreatment of his daughter-in-law. But whatever it is, Judah turns a corner. This is an important moment for Judah. Look at what he says in verse 26. She is more righteous than I, since I did not give my son Shelah to her. This may well be the moment in Judah's life where his years of writing his testimony begin to be redeemed in the hands of God. Because the next Judah that we see a few chapters later is willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of his youngest brother Benjamin. He's a very different Judah. The moment of turning the experience that leads a person away from his own pursuits and onto the path of redemption is an honest, humble recognition of his own sinfulness and rebellion before a holy God. And this is what Judah seems to be face to face with here. There is nowhere to hide. This is who I am. And he gets honest about it. She is more righteous than I. To any non-Christians who might be here, let me say to you, that's the story of dozens of people sitting around this room today. You see, Christians aren't people who are morally superior to others or who somehow are less sinful than others, not at all. They're sinners who, by God's grace, have been made aware of their sin, made aware of the depth of their offense against our Creator, and the depth of their need for his mercy and forgiveness in Christ. And upon that recognition, they've simply trusted that the work of Jesus Christ in their behalf was sufficient to provide the mercy and forgiveness that they needed, and they've turned to him in repentance and faith. Friend, that could be your story too. Admit your sin to God, turn away from sin in repentance, and trust on Jesus Christ for forgiveness and eternal life. 
Well, the drama of chapter 38 isn't quite over yet. Let's look at the last paragraph together, starting at verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach. Afterward, his, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Continuing a family tradition, Tamar conceived by Judah not just one son, but two sons. And another family tradition of sorts continues as well. The younger one will take the place of prominence, just as we saw with Jacob and Esau, just as we saw before that with Isaac and Ishmael. The scarlet thread is tied around the wrist of the oldest of them, who was about to come out first, but then the younger one actually beat him down the chute. And so he comes out as the, the younger, and, uh, excuse me, so Perez, the younger one, and uh, it sounds a little bit like Jacob and his older twin Esau, I think, the grabbing, holding on to the heels, trying, trying to enter the world, getting ahead. And in keeping with Yahweh's pattern of upending human expectations, it is not Zerah, the older twin, whose name will wind up in a place of prominence, but that of the younger brother, Perez. Now, does his name ring a bell? Here's how the book of Ruth ends. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So the great King David is a descendant of Tamar's second-born son, Perez. But that royal bloodline leading to King David wouldn't stop there. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, opens with a recitation of Messiah's family tree. Here's how Matthew begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Obviously, that's a very contracted version of the genealogy. But look who else shows up in this genealogy, in this family tree in verses 2 and 3. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron. Perhaps you've observed before the generosity of God that's evidenced by the ragtag bunch of goobers and hooligans that comprise Jesus' earthly ancestral tree. But note it well, the Canaanite daughter-in-law of the wayward son of Jacob became the mother of the mighty house of Perez and a great-grandmother of the Lord who himself would redeem her and everyone else in this messed-up family by his own sinless life, self-sacrificing death, and victorious resurrection. And then in Revelation 5, 5, we're given one of the royal titles by which Jesus Christ, this victorious resurrected king, is known. You know what it is? the lion of the tribe of Judah. Pretty good testimony, wouldn't you say? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your truth. 
Thank you for the way you speak to us, challenge us, call to us in your word. May we find in Christ all that we need, all the forgiveness and mercy that our sin-sick souls need. May we rest ourselves again and again, day by day, upon his finished work, knowing that in ourselves, in our own sin, we are no better than Judah. We are no more righteous than he. We need the righteousness of another to stand in our place. And in Jesus, that is what we have. Help us, Lord, to live in the light of that righteousness, in the light of the good that you've purchased for us in Christ, and to carry that message to those who need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.